coming up. He simply said that, you know, when she basically told him that she was transgender, he got very upset by that and asked her to get out of the van, and she walked away. What did you make of that at that point? Oh, that was a lie. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. And I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Local news station KGW in Portland, Oregon, has launched a new podcast series called Should Be Alive, sharing the story of a 17-year-old who went missing in June of 2019. This is Detective David Jensen with Vancouver Police, and the date is October 2nd, 2019. The time is 6.35 p.m. It's been four months, almost to the day, that a teenage girl seemingly disappeared from her hometown of Vancouver, Washington. Were you aware that this is recording? Yep. Do I have your consent to record this conversation? Yep. Okay, also with me is... This is the first time detectives are getting to talk to the man they believe was the last person to see 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen. It's been a game of cat and mouse, just getting him here to answer questions. Do you have any idea why? Well, I'm you, asking you. I was told missing persons case. Okay. We're joined by Ashley Corslin, host of Should Be Alive. Ashley, thanks for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Ashley, we've had you on this show a handful of times in the past, and one of those times was to talk about this case that's at the center of your new podcast series, the murder of a teenage girl named Nikki Kuhnhausen. But because it's been a little while, can you introduce our listeners to this story again? Who was Nikki, and what were the circumstances surrounding her disappearance back in 2019? Yeah, so Nikki was uh, a 17-year-old from Vancouver, Washington. Uh, Nikki was transgender, and Nikki had gone out for a late-night walk in June of 2019. She had left the the house she was staying at with some friends of hers. She was sort of couch surfing, is how her mom described it. And Nikki went out for a walk one night. She ended up meeting a man who pulled over to talk to her as she walked by herself, and she ended up um, getting into a van with the man and her roommate said after that night, they never saw her again. And so in those er, those first few days, the information was very limited that came out um, with the family ultimately going to police. But no one really knew. They just knew she got into a van with this older man who was described as an older Russian man. And so the first few weeks really were hard on Nikki's mom specifically because she said her daughter never would have left. She never would have just disappeared from social media and all contact was with her family was severed at that point. What else can you tell us about Nikki? What were you able to learn about her as a person through your work on this series? And that's really part of why we wanted to do this case is there was so much more to Nikki um, than what happened to her. And we really wanted to let listeners in on Nikki's early years. I mean, she was so young when she disappeared. She was 17 and had so much life left to live. But Nikki was a force. Um, Nikki was kind of the life of the party, this magnetic personality who people really wanted to be around. And friends adored her. Um, Her mom was extremely close with Nikki. They talked every day. Um, But then there was another side of Nikki where she struggled in life. She had overcame a lot of obstacles from an early age. She had bounced in and out of foster care a bit. Um, She went back to living with her parents. And Nikki was bullied for being trans gender. So she faced a lot of um, discrimination and um, verbal attacks from people. And and so she had dealt with a lot in her first 17 years. But at the end of the day, she impacted so many people. And Ashley, you, you learned a lot of information from investigators. You did interviews with investigators, along with a, a lot of other interviews. You've been working on the series for a while. Talk to us about who you talked to for this podcast. 
Yeah, so we really relied on Nikki's um, mom, specifically um, her brother and some of her friends to really give us, to paint that picture of who Nikki was and learn more about Nikki. But then as we investigated and examined the investigation into the murder and the subsequent trial, um, we talked to several investigators. We actually tracked down the person who was out picking bear grass in the middle of a mountain range who had discovered Nikki's remains. And that was a really powerful interview um, to hear from that gentleman. And then beyond that, the prosecutors who built the case against David Bogdanov had some pretty fascinating revelations and they shared what it was like behind the scenes to put together this um, hate crime murder uh, murder case against the suspect involved. And so you'll hear a lot of different interviews with all of those uh, people who played a really important role in bringing justice to Nikki and her family. And it's not just interviews, there's a lot of different kinds of audio that you include throughout the series, including police interrogations with David Bogdanov. How difficult was it to track all of those different types of audio down? It definitely took a while. I was putting in public disclosure requests to the court system, to the police department, and each jurisdiction, each agency has different types of documents. And so you really learn how to navigate um, that public disclosure process when you're involved in a project like this. And so um, we ended up getting two really key pieces of a video from the police department. And that took us several months to get that back um, through the process of requesting those records. But those videos were quite compelling. One of them was an interview the suspect gave with police several months before his arrest. And you really get to hear, I think it's an hour long, and you get to hear his version of events or what he claimed happened the night he met Nikki. Um, and it goes on and on. And he tells this this whole story that ended up being fabricated. But at the time, investigators didn't know that. And so that's a really compelling piece of audio that our listeners will hear in the podcast. So, so you're the last person to ever see her. Mm, I don't know. And that's why we want to talk to you. Because okay, you're, you're literally just... After she left with you, no one ever saw her again. I don't know what I what I can tell you. What else? I mean, it's just up to that point. Like I said, I was I didn't had no clue who yeah. she was, what, what she was. But she got out of the car there, brushed her. Yeah, right in that area. She just got out of the car, and I took off and went to went to my brother's job site. Ashley, there's a bigger picture here and some important context for this entire series is that acts of violence against transgender individuals have been increasing in recent years. Can you talk about some of the trends you uncovered while working on the podcast? Yes. So we interviewed the Human Rights Campaign, which is an advocacy group, and they track they track acts of violence against transgender people, but specifically murders. And it was really eye-opening to talk with them because over the last several years specifically, they've really seen an increase in murders of transgender Americans. The numbers so far this year are already on track to become a record. Uh, Last year in 2021, there were 57 murders of transgender people in America. And so the HRC is really wanting to highlight this, what they call an epidemic of violence. And so part of the interview, you'll hear with them is is about that. But also, um, I ask them, is this because there are more acts of violence or is this topic, um, these conversations becoming um, increasing because people have more awareness around this subject? And so we really get to dive into the data on that, which um, is really disturbing 
when you think about those numbers going up year after year. But then another really important interview that we got to dive into in this podcast was we tracked down an expert out of Texas who is a professor, and he has studied the panic defense going all the way back to the 1960s. And he explains to us in his research what it has shown as far as the impact on sentences defendants who have killed um, either a gay person or a transgender person, the sentences and the charges they face because of using that so-called panic defense. And so we will kind of dive into the numbers there and give a lot of context on what that has looked like historically. I'm thinking back to the last time we talked about Nikki's case on this podcast, and we talked about that so-called panic defense and the fact that Nikki's case has led to some pretty important legislation in Washington. Can you talk about that? So for people who aren't familiar with the panic defense, um, the gay panic defense, or it's called the trans panic defense, um, it's not a... It's not a specific defense that you would enter into court like a self-defense plea would be, but it is a legal strategy. And if I boil it down for people who aren't familiar with it, essentially what it is, it is where a defendant in a criminal case would say, um, perhaps they murdered or assaulted someone who is gay or transgender or LGBTQ+. The defendant would, in theory, say, look, I can't be held responsible for my actions because I was in a moment of panic when I discovered this person I killed was transgender and I was not in my right mental state. And I, for lack of a better term, freaked out. Um, I panicked and I killed them. And therefore, I can't be held responsible. And so that, in a nutshell, is what the panic defense is. And that has been used over the decades in many, many cases. And in some instances, it has gotten a defendant acquitted in a murder trial. And so that is a uh, that is what is so important about Nikki's law, the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act, is that even though Nikki's killer didn't use the panic defense specifically, he had a self-defense claim. Nikki's family really wanted to push for legislation that outlawed the panic defense in Washington state moving forward so that no defendant ever could use it again in the state of Washington. Ashley, we've been fortunate enough to work with you on two other podcast series, Urge to Kill and also The Yellow Car. I'm guessing some of our listeners have listened to those podcasts. From your perspective, how did working on this series compare to those other ones? I think it was similar in some ways and and different in many, many ways. Um, At the end of the day, when we're doing projects like this, you have families of these victims who have suffered grave injustices. They've been through the most traumatic of experiences they will ever face losing a loved one. And so the difference in this one, for me personally, was the fact that Nikki was so young. She was just 17. She didn't even know really what she wanted to do with her life yet. And she didn't have that opportunity. And there was just this chance encounter she had with a man who picked her up. And the the fact that Nikki was killed for who she was, I think is what really hit me personally, emotionally, is that Nikki didn't get to live out her life and and become the woman she would have become that was taken from her. And so the fact that this man discovered Nikki was transgender and strangled her was just so horrendous. And sharing Nikki's story was really important for me personally, also because of the legislation, because of Nikki's law and her helping her family keep Nikki's legacy alive. And so those were all the reasons that made this case really um, of utmost importance, especially at a time right now where 
in society, we're having a lot of these conversations. We're hearing about an increase in acts of violence against transgender Americans. I think it's really important to bring this to the forefront of our conversations that we're having. The series is called Should Be Alive. The first episode is available now. The second episode drops tomorrow. You can find it by searching for Should Be Alive wherever you listen to The Daily Crime. Ashley Korslin, thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thanks for having me here. And Ashley, yeah, thanks for talking to us. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We are here Monday through Friday, five days a week. For Vault Studios, Long and Three Redmond, I'm Will Johnson. <laughs>